Are we ready to get started? Let's do it. Well, I, I believe there's two types of people in this world. There's two types of people in this church. There are those who like to camp and those who do not like to camp. Are you with me? Who, who in here is just an outdoorsman or woman and just loves to be in the great outdoors? We've got a few. Okay, I think some of you are lying. Because a lot of us love the idea of camping, but we don't actually love to camp. I mean, you, got, you realize what camping is in its essence. It's when we leave a perfectly good home, right, with air conditioning, heat, electricity, Wi-Fi, running water, and we go out into the middle of the woods, and you get an awful night's sleep because you usually have a stump or a root right under your back. You wake up at the crack of dawn when the sun rises. You have a breakfast of soggy oatmeal, you know, diluted coffee, eggs with ashes in them, and you spend the rest of the day just hiking on your feet. I mean, that's camping. And some of you really love this. I just gave that description. You just said, send me outdoors right now, right? I'm actually one of those people. I love being outside. Uh, This past summer, my family took a trip to Banff National Park in Canada, and we spent a week in a tent with a one-year-old, okay? And I got to fish and mountain bike, and halfway through the trip, my wife looked at me and said, I need a vacation after this vacation. It was misery for her. But here's what's really interesting. We're going to read a passage this morning that actually describes God in a tent. God goes camping. I'm going to look at the passage in Exodus. Let me give you a little background, and then we'll dive into this main passage. This is in the book of Exodus. So what this passage is describing is an exit. So the nation of Israel has been freed from Egyptian slavery. So for a long time, the Israelites were under the yoke of slavery in Egypt. There was an evil pharaoh that controlled them. And you've probably heard this story before. But God, in his grace, frees Israel from their bondage. They work their way across the Red Sea. There's a miraculous preservation, and eventually, where we pick up now, the Israelites are in the wilderness. They're in the desert. And God says, I want you to pitch your tent. I want you to set up base camp. And they pick a scenic location right at the foot of a mountain. The mountain is called Mount Sinai. And for the next bit of time, Moses, the leader of the Israelites, would hike up the mountain. He would ascend to the very peak And at the top of the mountain, God would actually directly communicate with Moses himself. Moses would receive instruction. He would head back down the mountain, and he would pass the word on to the Israelites. And so in Exodus 25, God actually gives Moses a very specific instruction. He says, Moses, I want you and your people to build me a sanctuary because I want to dwell in the midst of my people. So the point is this, is that God has freed his people from slavery. He has brought them to the wilderness, and he desires to dwell in the midst of his people. And the specific location that God wants to reside in is his sanctuary. It's his tabernacle. And the word literally means tent. It's a holy place. And so for the next six chapters, Exodus 25 through 31, it is a laundry list of specific details where God is saying, This is what I want my tent to look like. And so God describes the exterior. He says, here's the dimensions. Here's the court. Here's exactly what I want it to look like. And then for a couple chapters, God almost turns into an interior decorator. And he says, I want a table in this corner. And I want an ark in this corner. And put a couple lamps in the middle. 
And God is so picky, he actually says, look, if you're going to come into my tent, you got to wash. you got to get clean. And if you're going to be my guest, you got to wear certain garments as priests. But the point is this. This is not just some outdated, antiquated story. Do you realize this story actually mirrors and, remem- and resembles our stories and our testimonies? Because just in the same way that God had a special and unique relationship with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, the New Testament actually refers to the church as a new Israel, as a chosen nation. And so in the same way, just think about your testimony if you have a relationship with Christ. If you, as you look back on your life, couldn't you say that at one point in my life, I was under slavery? I, I had a master, and that master was sin. And yet, through the grace of God, specifically through the blood of his firstborn son, I was freed from sin. And God has released me from this master. And today, I'm traveling. I'm on a journey. And some days it feels like I'm wandering. And some days, just like Israel, I'm groaning and grumbling and complaining. But just like Israel, God actually desires to dwell with me. Did you know that 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this? That you, you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells within you. So now you are the tabernacle. You are the temple. You are the tent. And guess what? Slowly but surely, we're making our way to the promised land. See, the story of the Exodus is actually our own personal story if you have a relationship with Christ. And so here's where we're going to focus on our text. We're going to look at Exodus 31 and the specific instructions that God gives to Moses to build this tabernacle, to build this tent. Read with me in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I've called by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I filled them with the Spirit of God, with ability, intelligence, knowledge, and craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I've appointed with him Ohaliab, son of Ahasamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all these men ability. Now the first thing I want to point out is God says, I want a tabernacle. Well, what is a tabernacle? The word literally means tent. And if you've ever bought a tent at an outdoor store, you know that tents come in different sizes, right? You can buy a one-man tent, which is like an oversized sleeping bag. It'll suffocate you. You can buy a three-man tent. You can buy a family-sized tent. And a tabernacle simply is a God-sized tent. And notice about this tabernacle, uh, I noticed two things. It is both holy and humble, right? Two adjectives to describe this tent. It's humble and holy. So first off, it's humble. Because this is the creator of the universe we're talking about right here. And he says, I want to dwell with my people. Not in a palace, not in a, mansion, not in a mansion, but God says, look, if my people are living in tents, then I'm going to what? I'm going to live in a tent. Does this not reveal the humility of God that he's willing to enter into our world, live on our level, identify with our circumstances. Now, let me ask you this. What is the ultimate example of God's humility, God's willingness to dwell amongst us? All right, guys, the, the, the 8 a.m. service, they were a lot more vocal than you, and you've got a lot more sleep. All right, what is the ultimate? Who is the ultimate example? Jesus. When in doubt, say Jesus. Because in John 1, 
what do we read? That God became flesh and he what? He dwelt among us. The exact same word. Dwelt literally means tabernacle. So John 1 says that Jesus is God in a tabernacle. Because God put on flesh. He put on a tent of skin and bone and muscles just so he could be amongst his people and enter into our circumstances. Don't you see that God is humble? He enters into his world. But this isn't just any normal, regular, plain old tent. This is a holy tent. It's set apart. It's special. And this is why God commands specific measurements and materials and methods and ways of building it. But the point I want to make is this, is that buildings actually matter to God. Are you with me? Sanctuaries matter. Architecture matters. Places of worship actually matter to God. Look, this, this, this is actually was new to me because I work for Campus Outreach, and the CO mentality is we don't care about buildings, right? I mean, most of you guys who are involved with Campus Outreach know that we have meetings and Bible studies anywhere, anytime, any place. We don't care what it looks like, feels like, or smells like. I mean, we'll have a meeting in a locker room in a fraternity house when they're cracking beers and smoking cigs. Uh, we don't care about the environment, but God does. All right, these guys are laughing because it's true. But God does, and, and that is why we're actually expanding this sanctuary, because buildings matter to God. Now, here's what I'm not saying, that Pastor Andrew found some hill in Carroll County, and he ascended, and God delivered supernaturally this divine blueprint all right, to expand our sanctuary. But I do think that our session, our leaders, and our, and our ministry leaders, and our pastors have prayed, they've discussed and deliberated, how can we build a space that is both holy and humble, just like the tabernacle? And what we endeavor to build is an environment where you can come into the very presence of God, and you can focus, and you wouldn't be distracted, so that you can experience the dwelling place of God each and every Sunday. And so what we're going to focus on this morning is not the physical sanctuary. We're going to look at how God builds his tabernacle. But the question I want to answer this morning is how does God build his spiritual church today? So we have four points. How does God build the church today? First off, we see that God calls. Then God fills. Then God commands. And then he perfects. So first and foremost, when God build his, builds his church... He calls. We see very specifically that God is operating almost like a foreman, like a manager, like a supervisor, and he hires and selects his craftsmen. He is subbing out the building of this sanctuary. And there's a pattern that would be very apparent to the original audience, the Jews that were reading this for the first time. They would notice immediately that Exodus 31 actually reflects or it echoes the creative work that God does in Genesis 1. Y'all remember Genesis 1, right? When God creates the universe. And how long does it take God to create the universe? It takes him seven days. Well, here's what's interesting. Do you know that Moses actually ascends to the top of the mountain seven times? And at the end of the original creation, what does God do? He rests. And at the end of the creation of the tabernacle... What do Moses and his people do? They rest. And so there's a pattern that's going on. There's similarities between Genesis 1 and Genesis 31. 
excuse me, Exodus 31. And the point is this. Every day when God creates something, in Genesis 1, he uses two things. He uses his voice, he uses his words, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? And so God uses his word and the power of the Holy Spirit to bring the universe and also the tabernacle into existence. Now keep in mind, you are the temple. And God dwells within you. So I'd be willing to bet if you have a relationship with Christ, you want God to recreate you, right? To renovate you, to make you new, to continue this creative process in your life. So if you want God to continue to transform you, what should you fill your mind and your life with? Well, the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Because that's how God does his creative work. But here's where Genesis 1 is different than Exodus 31 because God uses particular men and able-bodied people to build this tabernacle. In fact, this passage describes God choosing two specific men. we got Bezalel and Ohaliab. And here's what I want you to see. These men were divinely designed by God for this specific task and assignment. And how do we know this? We know this by the meaning of their name. Bezalel, his name literally means shadow of God. Now, where was this tent being constructed? Help me out. In a desert, in the wilderness. And if you go to a desert, there aren't very many trees. And if there's no trees, there's no shadows. And so very likely, this tabernacle, this tent, was the only shadow for miles around. Ohaliab, his name means this. My father is protection. In the same way, what was the tabernacle? It was a protective way to come in the presence of God the Father. So it seems like God has divinely, sovereignly placed these men in the midst of Israelites to build this tabernacle. Well, guess what? God is doing the same thing in our midst. I believe that Scripture affirms that if you are in Christ, if you have a relationship with Jesus, God has divinely designed you to be about the business of building up his church. He has given you his Holy Spirit, but he's also given you gifts, spiritual gifts, great grace gifts to build up his church. Now you might be asking yourself, what are my gifts? What are the ways that God has gifted me? Well, I want to encourage you to do a couple of things if you want to discern your gifts. First off, read the Bible. Read passages like Ephesians 4, Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 12, and you'll read about the different gifts that God gives his people. Everybody has at least one gift. Second, I'd encourage you to ask other people, people who know you well, people who are mature in their faith, who can point out and help you inventory the different ways that God has wired you. And third... Believe it or not, this summer, we're actually going to be offering a course that will help you learn and understand your divine design. And really, the pattern, the process we're going to follow is exactly what we see occurring with Bezalel and Ohaliab, because God gifts them in several clear and specific ways. First off, God in his grace gives them what? Ability. Did you pick up on that? Well, what is your ability? These are strengths. These are skills. This is what you're good at. And so the first thing you got to ask yourself if you want to learn your divine design is what am I good at? Maybe I'm really good at talking to people about Jesus. I love inviting people into my home. I love serving behind the scenes. This is part of your divine design. 
Second, God gives these men intelligence and knowledge. This is what you know. So you got to ask yourself, what is my expertise? What is my training? What do I know really well? Maybe I'm an expert in finances or cooking, or, or I have a great understanding and grasp of God's word and scripture. Third, we see God gives them the gift of craftsmanship. These are this men, th- these men's passions. So you got to ask yourself, what excites me? What moves me? What gives me life? What am I passionate about? Maybe you love to mentor young people. You love to provide marital counseling. You love to teach. You love to work with children. And then finally we see that, that God in a sense has worked in the very naming of these men. In other words, their stories, their life experiences, their family histories have given them some sort of calling for the future. I mean, I would say one of the primary reasons that I feel called to college ministry is because God transformed my life as a college student. Very often, God will direct your future calling by your past circumstances. And so this is how we learn our divine design. And here's what I want you to understand. These things are not incidental. Very often, we think about these things. Yeah, I just like doing this. I'm pretty good at this. No, this is part of God's sovereign and providential work in your life. And he has wired you, informed you, designed you in a specific way so that you would build up his church. And guess what? God is already doing this right here, right now in King's Chapel for the physical sanctuary and the spiritual church. I think about this expansion that's occurring right now. It is no accident that Lowry Collins and Mike Cockerese are extremely gifted engineers. They are getting stuff done. It's no accident that we have gifted fundraisers in our church, that Ryan Sorensen is an expert in audiovisual and technology, that there are generous families that have joined our church over the last couple of years. God has already put people in our midst to expand this sanctuary. But more importantly, he's doing this with the spiritual body. There's women like Aaron Good who are gifted and experts in working with your children. You have families like Jeff and Carol Clark who have passions for marital counseling. You have men like Henry Dent who have intelligence when it comes to finances. We even have women like Rose Miller who are building movements of adoption and fostering. God is already doing this in our midst. So not only does God call us to the work of ministry, he also fills us. So upon conversion, we receive the Holy Spirit. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're baptized in the Holy Spirit. But very often, God will fill us with his Spirit so that we can accomplish, so that we can finish a specific task or assignment. And that's what these two men are doing. That's what we see Bezalel and Ohileb accomplishing. They are leading this project. And so these are the foremen. They're the managers. They're the leaders. But they're also supported by who? A group of able men and able women who are accomplishing the task. So here's what we see. In the building of the tabernacle, there is a crew of anonymous but spirit-filled construction workers. That sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Spirit-filled construction workers. And these men and women are never named. But guess what? Could the tabernacle be be completed without them? Absolutely not. Well, brothers and sisters, the church is structured the exact same way. 
Because we have men like Pastor Andrew, we have a session, we have men and women that serve as, as ministry leaders. But guess what? They are equipping the congregation, they are equipping the saints to build this church. And this isn't just an Exodus concept. This is all throughout Scripture. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 says this, that God has given us, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 14, 12 echoes this same idea. It says that the church should strive to excel in building up the church. So here's my question. When you read Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, who does the work of ministry? Not a rhetorical question. We do. Absolutely right. All right. Pastor Andrew does not do the work of ministry. The role of the ministry leaders, the session, and the pastors is not to do all the ministry, is it? Their primary responsibility, the task that they've been given by God, is to equip you to do the work of ministry. And so just like this anonymous group in Exodus 31, you are a spirit-filled construction worker. You should be wearing a hard hat and swinging a hammer, and God has gifted you in specific and certain ways to build up this church. And so once again, the task of ministry, it's not just reserved for the ordained or the seminary trained or the full-time missionaries. Do you see this? Paul is actually saying that elders don't do the work of, work of ministry. Their job is to equip you to do the work of ministry. But this also tells us something about ministry. Very often, ministry feels like what? Construction work. It feels like labor. That means very often, we've got to show up day in, day out. We've got to grind. We've got to sweat. But here's the thing, when we do the work of ministry, what does God promise? Is that he would fill us with his Holy Spirit. So who wants to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I know I do. Well, God says, look, if you want to be filled with my Spirit, then enter, join, do the work of ministry. Now let me pause just for a moment. Because you probably picked up on this. These two men, Bezalel and Ohilib, these aren't just run-of-the-mill construction workers, are they? This ain't Scott Kaiser day in, day out. What are these guys working with? They're working with gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. In our day and age, what would we actually define these men as? Help me out. Probably artists, artisans, right? And so I want to talk just for a moment about what the Bible says about art. Now, I am way, way, way outside of my comfort zone. Okay, I am not an artist, I'm about as plain as I get, all right? I'm not even creative with my coffee. If you walked into my office, it looks like a jail cell because the walls are completely plain. But the Bible has a lot to say about art. Do you know this? We got any creatives, any artists in the room? You're gonna love this part of the sermon. Because the first thing we see is that God is an artist. And Ben even mentioned it this morning. All right, my wife is very creative. And, and she has this statement. She says, look, everyone's creative, and, and at first, I thought this was like a little cliche bumper sticker, but you, the more you study Scripture, you see this is a profoundly deep and true theological statement that God is an artist. And if we're made in His image, we also 
are creative. Let me prove it. Psalm 19.1 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So what are the Psalms saying? That the sunrise and the sunset and the galaxies and stars and constellation is the work of an artist God. I'll give you one more example. Ephesians 2.10, after that amazing, clear gospel passage of, of Ephesians 2.8-9, what does Paul say? He says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Well, do you know what that word workmanship means in the original language? It means masterpiece. It means piece of art. So brothers and sisters, if you have a relationship with Christ, what are you? You are God's masterpiece. And, and the picture is, is that God is almost like a divine sculptor. And he is taking a chisel and a hammer to your life. And there are some moments and days when he's just cracking that thing. And he's removing portions of flesh and selfishness and sin in our lives. But slowly but surely, God is forming us and making us into a masterpiece. Think just for a moment about our first impression of the God of the Bible in Genesis 1, first page of the Bible. When we meet God... What is the primary task that he's focused on? What is he doing in Genesis 1? He's creating. He's a creative God. And then if you go to the very end of the Bible, what do you read about? God makes, God creates what? A new heavens, a new earth. And this heaven is described as ornate and it's beautiful. So we see God creating a garden in Genesis 1. You understand that a garden is different than wilderness, right? Gardens require care and tending, and they're complex, and they're beautiful, and they're ornate, and it's the same thing with heaven. So we serve. We were created by an artistic God. So if we serve a God who's an artist, surely art isn't lesser. You know, there's a great story about a man named Francis Schaeffer. This guy was a legitimate thinker, philosopher, intellect. I've tried to read his books. They go right over my head. This guy was a serious thinker. And at one point in Francis Schaeffer's life, it was actually during Christmas time, he was actually decorating his home. He was hanging ornaments. And there was a young man that he mentored and discipled that was in the room with him. And this guy was just picking Dr. Schaeffer's brain, asking him deep philosophical, theological questions, all right? The type of, type of questions you ask professors. And halfway through this conversation, this young guy looked at Dr. Schaeffer and he said, why are you spending so much time decorating your home? Isn't this a waste of time? You could be reading and writing and philosophizing. And Dr. Schaefer looked at him and he said this. He said, if you were God, the whole world would be black and white. <laughs> so here's the thing, and I'm guilty of this. Very often when I lead Bible studies and when we preach, we talk about a God and a gospel that is true and right, and good, and we should. But the artists in the room, the creatives in the room, they remind us all that God is what? That he's beautiful, and that's extremely important as well. So God is an artist, but God also creates artists, just like these two men. God gives us specific people with skills and talents, and these talents are not secular. Do you see that? This is a divine gifting and vocation. And once again, this is happening in our midst. We have women like Marianne Chance and Lindsay Williamson who work with flowers and they garden. Ryan Ayers cultivates land and animals. 
Our worship band plays instruments and pianos and make beautiful melodies. Ben Horton works with wood. Dan Paris brews fine craft beer. Professor Dan Williams works, he writes and he crafts and he forms words. The point I'm making is this. All of these men and women are reflecting and bringing God glory. So for my artists in the room, my creatives, God has made you with a specific purpose. And what you do is sacred and it's meaningful. And here's the reason why, because art is powerful. Am I right? Art forms us. It shapes us positively and negatively. I mean, just think for a moment of the influence of Hollywood and Top 40 Radio and YouTube videos and podcasts and songs and movies and plays and literature. In fact, we see the negative impact of art in the very next chapter. Because in Exodus 31, we have these spirit-filled artisans building a tabernacle that reflects the glory of God. But what do we see in Exodus 32? The people of Israel, they take their resources, their gold, their jewels, and what do they make? They make an idol. They make a golden calf. See, art forms us. Art transforms us, and we can either use it to reflect God in his glory or to replace God and to make an idol. So art has real power because it is able to captivate and to capture our heart. So that's my five minutes on art right there. It's the best I could do. All right, got a few claps from the artists. Y'all would probably do snaps, right, if you guys were real artists. So here's what we're back to the tabernacle. Now, God has already called. He's filled Now we see that God commands. We'll jump back into Exodus 31, 6 through 11. Read with me. It says that they they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, the pure lampstand with utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand. And the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests and the anointing oil, the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I've commanded you, they shall do. So like I said, this is six straight chapters of instructions, of details. This is usually the place, if you've tried to read the whole Bible in a year, this is where plans go to die right here. Because it gets really monotonous. But you got to keep in mind, this isn't Moses' preference, is it? No, this is God's instructions. And here's what we see. God is actually de- demanding, commanding, this is what I want in my tabernacle. And here's exactly what I want it to look like. And here's what we'll see. Each of these items either reflects the character of God or the content of the gospel. We already talked about the tents. The tent was the dwelling place, and it revealed to Israel that God is willing to enter into your circumstances. In the Holy of Holies, you had this thing called the Ark of the Covenants, and on top of the Ark was the mercy seat. Well, the Ark of the Covenant explicitly communicated the message of atonement and the gospel, because within the Ark, you had the 12 commandments or the law, but on top of the Ark, you had the mercy seat, which was the place, the location where the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the lamb. 
So do you see this? It revealed the standards of God, his law and his holiness, but also his willingness to atone and make sacrifice for our sins. You also found the table and a lampstand. On the table, you had 12 loaves of bread that represented the 12 nations or tribes of Israel. And facing that table was a lampstand that never went out. Now here's what you got to understand. There were pagan temples in these days. And they also had tables with food and drink and wine. But the pagans and the priests would fill these tables with food so that their gods could eat. But the tabernacle of the Bible is the exact opposite. Because when the bread was put on the table, it's because God was actually feeding his people. And there was a light that never went out because it represented that God is our light. And he's the light that never goes out in the midst of a dark and broken world. You'd also find a basin. And this is where the priest every day would wash and cleanse himself. And it reminded the people, if you're going to enter the presence of God, you've got to be holy and clean. There was oil and incense. These were aromatic. These were fragrant. And they described what acceptable worship smells like. Our worship and our prayers as they ascend to God, they're sweet. There was also a curtain, a thick curtain. And it combined threads and string that was blue and purple and scarlet and white. Do you know this, that each of these colors were symbolic? Let me explain it just for a moment. Blue represents something that is heavenly. Purple, divine. Scarlet represents, can you guess it? Blood. And white represents purity. Now think just for a moment. What is something, or more specifically, who is someone that is simultaneously heavenly, divine, sheds his blood, and is pure? Jesus. There we go. Y'all got it. When in doubt, say Jesus. But even the curtain pointed to Jesus. But the point I'm making is this. And I only pointed out a few of them. Every element in the tabernacle revealed something about just the nature of God or the nature of the gospel. And some were clear and explicit, and you can't miss it like the Ark of the Covenant. But some were very subtle and provocative and indirect, and they quietly foreshadowed just an element or an aspect of who God is. Well, our art should do the exact same thing. So yes, we need art and songs, and music, and movies, and books that explicitly explain the gospel. But at the same time, okay, you realize that you can create Christian music that does not explicitly communicate the message of the gospel. Right? We also need to write books, and to create movies, and to write songs that just emphasize an element, an aspect of who God is, his forgiveness, his justice, and his mercy. And this goes for our vocations, our careers as well. Some of you will work careers where you directly, clearly, explicitly explain the gospel. That's what I do. That's what pastors do, ministry leaders. But most of us work jobs that what? Are more indirectly point to the very nature of God. So if you're a doctor, you should go about your business in a way that you reveal to your patients that I serve a God who heals. And if you're a teacher, an administrator, a stay-at-home mom, you should go about your day in a way that your children and pupils understand that I serve a God who shepherds and nurtures. 
You lawyers should reveal that you serve a just God. If you're flipping burgers in a fast food restaurant, you should go about your business in a way that your customers understand that God is a God who provides and meets our needs. But here's the thing. Very often we don't do this, do we? Very often we sit on the sidelines. We, maybe you don't know your gifts. You don't know your abilities. Or maybe you do know and you just haven't put them to work. You're not serving in the church. You're sitting on the sideline. You're not using your divine design to build up the church. Or maybe you do know your abilities, your intelligence. And instead of using it to bring God glory and build his kingdom, you're actually using it for yourself. Or even worse, you're like the Israelites. And you use your skills and gifts to build false gods and idols. Well, here's the final point. The final point is this, is that God perfects. God perfects. Because the reality is we're just like Israel. And guess what? God knows that. And so there's a reason why when God establishes and creates his tabernacle, and the very fabric of the tabernacle, there was a way and there was a means of forgiveness and atonement. In fact, I would encourage you, if you're interested in the tabernacle, in the sacrificial system, you need to read the book of Hebrews, chapter 8 and chapter 9. Hebrews 9 says this, is that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, there's our word, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Jesus entered once and for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, that by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So brothers and sisters, in the tabernacle, there was a high priest, and he could only enter once a year on the day of atonement to sacrifice or sprinkle blood on the ark. And the book of Hebrews says that the tabernacle and this priest was actually a shadow of something to come. Because Jesus is our great high priest. And the tabernacle is actually a glimpse, it's a shadow of our universe. And just like the high priest would enter into the tabernacle and make atonement for the Israelites, Jesus has entered the tabernacle of our universe. And he has made atonement, not with the blood of an animal, but with his own blood for his people in the world. And Jesus has accomplished our redemption. He has bought us out of slavery. And he has made us right with God the Father. And so now, God can dwell with us. And so here's where I want to end it. I want us to look ahead. I want us to look to the future. There will come a day where we will actually dwell with God. This is Revelations 21. Read with me. Verse 3 says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with us. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So, brothers and sisters, this is a great vision. This is a great promise. Here's what Revelation predicts, is that one day, guess what? We will dwell with God. And do you remember, what does the word dwell literally mean? We're going to what? We're going to be in a tent with God. We will share a tent with our Creator. You ever shared a tent with somebody? It's almost more intimate than sharing a bed with somebody. I mean, you're all up in each other's business. I mean, you're laying next to them. I mean, you can smell what they ate for dinner. I mean, it, it, it is a close experience. And that's what heaven's going to be like. We're going to be all up in God's business, sharing a tent with him. That's how close, intimate, and real our relationship with him will be in the new heavens. And here's the reality. When we enter into this work and we do the work of ministry, we can make our lives, our church, our city, and our campus better. But God's not in the business of making things better, is he? What is Revelation 21? Is God improving all things? Is God making all things better? No, Revelation says that God is making all things what? New. And so, brothers and sisters, even if we take up this work, even if we know every one of my spiritual gifts and I use it to my full capacity, we can only make some things better for a few. And yet God promises that I will make all things new. And he says this work is done. It is finished. In a lot of ways, it's just like my old house. My house is over 100 years old. It is done, it is finished, and it is complete. But guess what? All spring break, you know what I was doing? I was working on my house. And I was sanding and painting and I was swinging a hammer because the work on my house will never be complete. It'll never be finished. And guess what? The work in our own hearts and our own lives, it'll never be what? It'll never be finished. The work in this church will never be complete. In this city, on our campus, it will always be a work in progress. And yet Jesus says what? I will finish the work. And what did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. And what does Jesus promise you in Ephesians 2.10? He says, I will finish my masterpiece because I am the Alpha. I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. So brothers and sisters, will you get off the sideline? Will you join the work of ministry? Don't leave it to the paid professionals. Don't leave it, to, leave it to the ordained, to the seminary trained. Will you join this work? Will you build the church? Because God promises this in Philippians 1.6. He says, look, I've started the good work. And I'm going to what? I'm going to bring it to completion on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we didn't start it. We don't finish it. But we've been given a privilege and an opportunity to join God in the building of his church in this city. Amen? All right, pray with me. Dear Lord, we thank you for the church. As much as I love this church, we're a work in progress. And just like we're breaking down walls and we're adding on and renovating, expanding, you're doing the same work in our hearts and our lives. You're making us new. Lord, I pray that you would give insight into our own lives, our own gifting, the way that you've wired us. 
I pray that we'd be men and women who understand the way that you've gifted us and that we would put it to practice. We would be about the business of building your church. I pray that King's Chapel would be a church that puts on their hard hats, swings the hammer, and builds the church right here, right now in this community and in the world. We got more than that. I pray that we would trust in you, that you are the one who started this church and you will finish it. So, Lord, I would pray that we would embrace this assignment and this task and we would be about your work. We pray this in your name. Amen.